0: The following sermon was delivered by Associate Pastor, Reverend Sarah A. Speed, in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here's Reverend Sarah A. Speed. Friends, our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 11-16. through 16. Listen for what God might be saying to you today. For thus says the Lord, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from countries and will bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy." I will feed them with justice." This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was in elementary school, my brother brought home the classroom pet for Thanksgiving. It was a little orange hamster. For the life of me, I cannot remember this hamster's name, but usually kindergarten classes name their pets in relation to their appearance, you know? If the hamster's Fluffy, the kids name it Fluffy. If the hamster happens to be eating when the kindergartners arrive, then they name him Nibbles. If the hamster is on the hamster wheel when the kids arrive, they name him Squeaky. So I don't remember the name of the hamster we brought home, but I do remember that my sweet younger brother brought home the kindergarten pet for Thanksgiving. And I do remember that we lost it. When you're a kindergartner and you bring home the class pet, you really have one job. The one job is to bring the pet back. Admittedly, it's not a hard job. They give you a cage to keep the pet in, so it should be possible to bring the pet home and to take it back, but fate had other plans. It was a Sunday morning. Sunday mornings can have a particular kind of chaos in many family homes, but definitely in the preacher's house. Dad had left for church before God was even awake, which meant mom was having to wear both good cop and bad cop hat on a fluid rotation to make sure we kiddos got dressed, had our teeth brushed, and got out the door in time for church. As a second grader and a kindergartner, Nathan and I had absolutely zero ability to read the room. That skill had not developed yet, So in the midst of my sweet mom's hustle and bustle around the kitchen, we decided together, yes, this probably is a good time to bring Fluffy the hamster out of his cage. And so that's what we did. Nathan and I sat ourselves down right there in the middle of the kitchen linoleum floor to watch that little rodent scurry around as my mom probably asked for the fifth time, have you finished your breakfast? Now in the corner of the kitchen, there were a row of cabinets that had a baseboard that ran along the floor. And the cabinet jutted out over the baseboard by just a few inches. From our perspective, what we couldn't see sitting there on the floor is that between the bottom of the cabinet and the top of the baseboard, there was about half an inch of space, just enough for a hamster named Squeaky to slide up over that baseboard and get himself trapped under the cabinet, out of reach of human hands. Now I learned that day just how much missing church was not an option in my household. I already knew that come hell or high water, we would be at worship, but that morning I also learned that on the rare instance of the disappearance of a small mammal, my family would still be at worship. My mother said, there is no chance we can stay behind. So my brother wisely suggested that we pull off every bookshelf off the shelves, every Lego out of the box, and quickly assemble a retaining wall around the kitchen cabinets. That meant that if Nibbles decided to scoot himself back up over the baseboards and into the kitchen while we were at church praying for his safe return... He would not be free to make a new home under my parents' bed. He would just be in the kitchen. So after some quick construction, we left for church, worried that we had just lost the school pet, whatever his God-given name was. But even in the midst of our fear, I knew that if we came home from church and that hamster was still missing— the baseboards would be coming off and we would look and look and look until that little guy was found. Fortunately for the kitchen, Fluffy returned on his own. But I knew that if he hadn't, we would have gone searching because I knew that there were, there was an entire kindergarten class of kiddos at school that loved that little fluffy hamster And when love is involved, even if it's just for a nocturnal class pet, you don't stop looking. You don't stop searching. Love will not allow it. The book of Ezekiel was written for a lost people, a people in exile. Before the book was written, the Babylonians came to town. The Babylonians were a much bigger foreign army. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they set fire to the city. They salted the fields and they walked the residents of Israel away from their homeland, scattering them to the winds in an effort to strip them of their communal identity. Naturally, in all the grief and violence that this exile brought, the Israelites began to wonder, will God be able to find us in Babylon? You see, up to this point in history, much of how the Israelites understood God was tied to place. The Israelites believed the temple to be God's physical house. Before the temple, they believed the Ark of the Covenant to be God's physical house. The Israelites believed God was with them because they believed they had a landing place for God to dwell. Therefore, if the temple was destroyed and the Israelites were no longer home, the question was raised, will God still be able to find us? Are we lost? Or will God find us in exile?" It reminds me a bit of myself as a child. When I was four years old, we moved from Columbia, South Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. And one of my greatest concerns at four years old was not whether my parents would find a good home and a good school system. My greatest concern was whether or not Santa Claus would be able to find me in Florida. I was terrified that because we'd moved across state lines, Santa would have no idea what chimney was ours and Christmas morning might never look the same. For any kids in the room, you should know Santa did find me. But I was worried. I was worried that the move would make me lost. And on a more serious note, that's what the Israelites feared with God. Jerusalem had fallen. The temple had been destroyed. The Israelites were strangers in a foreign land. So in their fear and in their grief, they began wondering, will God find us here? And it's in the midst of that existential question asking that God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will be your shepherd. I will gather you together. I will feed you with good pastures. I will seek the lost. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. God is saying to God's people that no matter where you go, Temple or no temple, change of address or not, God will never stop looking for us. God will never stop seeking us. That's the promise of our text today. And it's a promise I need to hear. There was a woman at my church growing up who knew something about feeling lost. Her name was Stormy, and despite a a life of incredible tragedy, she was always the life of the party. When my family moved to Kansas City in, in middle school, Stormy had us over and led the whole family in a game night. She called everyone fun fella or fun gal, and she had the most colorful earring collection I'd ever seen. With all the fun that she radiated as a kid, I never guessed that Stormy had lost her son in the Vietnam War. But she, like the Israelites in exile, knew what it felt like to grieve. When I was in eighth grade, my family went to Washington, D.C. for a week of vacation. We did all the sightseeing and the tours, we went to the spy museum. It was a great trip. But before we left, Stormy showed up in my dad's office after a worship service where he and I were hanging up his robe. She said, hey fun folks, I heard you all are going to D.C. My dad said, yeah, we are. The kids are finally old enough to really get something out of it. We're really excited. Stormy began asking him about different sites Will you see the Lincoln Memorial? Will you, what about the White House? Will you go to the Holocaust Museum? Finally, she said, Do you think you'll see the Vietnam Memorial? My dad replied, Yeah, I think we will. And then Stormy got quiet. And Stormy was never quiet. And she said to my dad, I have never seen the memorial. Due to health reasons, I've never been able to get there. I had some others go look for me, but they they couldn't find my son. They, They said they couldn't find his name. For years, Stormy explained, she'd been worried that her son had been lost, forgotten, unable to be found. And so she asked us, Will you look for my son? His name is Gary. The day we got to the Vietnam Memorial, the four of us spread out, reading hundreds of names. Mom took one section, Dad took another, Nathan and I in between. And finally, we found it. In a sea of last names that started with the letter S, there it was. Gary Shank, right at my eighth grade eye level. And my mom, being the genius that she is, pulled a crayon and a piece of paper out of her backpack so that my brother and I, together, could press that piece of paper up against the wall and rub the etching of Gary's name into it. And we drove that piece of paper all the way back to Kansas City for Stormy. And she kept that red crayon rubbing on her mantle until the day she died. She kept it because no parent ever stops looking for their child. When you care about someone, you'll wait years for a crayon etching. You'll search the farthest distance for the lost sheep. You'll even build a retaining wall for the class pet if you have to. But you never stop looking. Love does not allow it. And Ezekiel tells us, we worship a God who loves us like that. No matter how far we are scattered, no matter how lost we feel, God will never stop looking for us. Now it feels important to note that the simple fact that God looks for us does not mean that God is distant from us. Usually when we're looking for something, it's because it's not nearby, I say usually because we humans have all been guilty for searching for the sunglasses that are on the top of our heads. But usually when we're looking for something is it's because it's far away. It's not on our person. We left it, lost it, forgot about it. That means if we're not careful, one could read this text of God searching for us and assume that it means God is distant from us. That was the fear of the Israelites in exile. One could wonder if this text implies that once upon a time, God put us sheep out to pasture and forgot what field we were in, and that's why God has to look for us, because God's been distant. But that's not how I read this text. Because a good shepherd never leaves her sheep. A good shepherd stays close to the flock, counting her sheep over and over and over again to make sure none are lost. And we worship a good shepherd. So the looking in our text doesn't imply distance. Instead, I think we can interpret the looking in our text to imply attention. And the Hebrew language supports this. This is nerdy, but the verbs, I will search, I will gather, those verbs in Hebrew are parsed to a kind of verb that implies a habitual action that is never done. That means the verb tense itself indicates that God has searched, that God is searching, and that God will search. It's not a commentary on distance. It's a commentary on God's attention, and God's attention is always on you. Here's what I mean. I once heard Kate Bowler, who will be our Godo lecturer this January, tell a story on her podcast. Everything happens. It was a story about the birth of her son. And in that story, Kate shared that she had a particularly challenging delivery. She joked that it was the kind of labor and delivery that you just didn't tell other women about because it would make us all not want to have children. But after hours of excruciating pain and hard medical decisions and an agonizingly slow labor... The nurses finally put her newborn son in her arms and Kate looked down at that little baby and she said, oh, it was you. It was you all this time. And she knew it was love. Friends, anytime I have been fortunate enough to have a holy moment in my life, one of those Mountaintop, goosebump, awestruck, holy ground moments we've been talking about all fall. My reaction has never been, oh, you finally found me, God. You finally figured out what pasture I was in. The immediate reaction in my gut at my core has always been, oh, it was you. You were here all along, God, and now I finally see it. Family of faith, all fall, we have been looking for God. Like detectives of divinity, we've looked for God's fingerprints in nature, in children, at table, and in music. We've looked for God in ritual and in community and in moments of awe that take our breath away. And that has been a good and faithful practice, for I am convinced that God is everywhere and the looking gives us a chance to actually see it. But what I want you to know as we end this sermon series is that while we've been busy looking for God all over the place, God has also been looking for us. That's the promise of our text today. While we have been searching for God's fingerprints in this world, God has been dancing around us, giving us the gifts of music and nature and community, things that would help us see God in our midst, things that would wake us up and help us say, oh, it was you all along. So church, believe this good news. No matter where you go, and no matter how long it's been, our God will never stop looking for you. Under the cabinets, in the valley, on the mountaintop, along the memorial wall, in a crowded room, or all alone, God will continue to seek and gather you up day after day after day, because love simply wouldn't have it any other way. We worship a good shepherd. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, no matter how long it's been, and no matter where you go, our God will search for you. Under the cabinets, on the mountain, in the valley, in the grave, God will never stop. So as you leave this place, may you love as if love is not a scarcity, May you hope like there is a better tomorrow. May you live like we belong to one another, because we do. And may you trust that nothing can separate you from the love of God. In the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself, go now in peace. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.